This episode contains adult subject matter, including discussion of sexual violence and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. One of the reasons when I talk about having feeling like I had a responsibility to do Surviving R. Kelly, it was because there was a way that our cultural memory was beginning to dim around the crimes that not only he had committed, but that he was becoming more egregious about committing. In some ways, his behavior escalated, his, mm-hmm. his predation escalated, his abuse escalated. That hope that he'd be canceled. Mm. That we would stop giving him our treasure, which, yes, is our money at, at concerts, but it's also our love. Yeah. You know, that's his real currency. Abolition is healing, accountability, transformation, community, constructive justice, resources. Abolition's hot. Creating systems that do not perpetuate harm. It's a belief in a better world. This is Abolition X. Yo, what's going on, y'all? This is Abolition X, the show where we bring abolition to the culture. I'm Vic Mensa. I'm Richie Reseda. And I'm Indigo Mateo. Today, we're talking about sexual violence. Sexual violence. Harmful or unwanted sexual acts directed against a person, regardless of the relationship to the survivor or victim. A lot of people don't know that the system not only fails survivors of sexual violence, but often ignores and even criminalizes them. We'll be talking to legendary writer and filmmaker Dream Hampton, who executive produced Lifetime's documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly. And we'll be talking to our friend Laura, a sexual abuse survivor currently serving 50 years to life in prison. It's the way so many survivors are behind bars. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'd be looking sideways when people are like, we need prisons because survivors need prisons. And it's like, wait, survivors are literally on both sides of this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I feel like we really need to stop pinning survivors against incarcerated people. Yes. Matter of fact, 79% of women in U.S. prisons are survivors of physical violence, and 60% of women in U.S. prisons are survivors of sexual violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like the norm. It's not even like sometimes survivors are people who are incarcerated. It's like most incarcerated women are survivors. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a whole organization, Survived and Punished, that does work around this very conversation and specifically works with criminalized survivors who are violated twice, once by the original harm doer and then again by the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just also, with this conversation around sexual violence, I just really wish that we would stop taking the ooh, ah, like approach when it comes to rape. Mm. Because I feel like everyone's like, oh my God, no, I would never, I would never rape someone, bro. That's mm-hmm. crazy. I don't have to do that. I have a car Ew. and a job. It's like... That's <laughs> like, facts though, yeah. Like Niggas that's how that. people talk about rape. Like like you can't get like close to someone with a 10-foot pole with a conversation about rape where I feel like I have been in line with what we're all mad about. You mm-hmm. know, it's like everybody's like, hey, racism, colorism. Like I feel like for me to say, yeah, I have been called out for colorism before. Mm. And I learned X, Y, Z. I wish more people would take that approach when it comes to sexual violence because it is such a shame sandwich on both sides. Like people who commit sexual violence, like that's the last thing people ever want to admit to. But I feel like 
since people don't admit to it and there is no accountability and like the only quote unquote accountability that we have is like go to prison Mm -hmm. and like or die or something. It's like, okay, great. But now people can't come forward and be like, yeah, I did rape you. I'm sorry. No room for accountability or honesty. Right. And like, I feel like that accountability and honesty would do so much good for like people's healing, but also just like for our culture in general. So we can like start naming the problem. Yeah. Like everyone has an uncle, cousin, brother, homie, someone who they know has committed an act of sexual violence. Yeah. And all sexual violence is not rape. Sexual violence is a spectrum of things too. Like I definitely pressured women to be sexual. Like I remember I was 17 and me and this girl were making out and I kept trying to like take off her shirt Mm -hmm. and she would like be like, no. In my mind, I was like, well, I just haven't made out with her long enough for that to be appropriate. So I'm gonna just keep Mm -hmm. trying like every Mm -hmm. five or 10 minutes. But it was honestly, when I look back on it, it was giving creep. Like it was giving like, no, this person is just not interested in that. They just want to kiss. And I didn't realize that till years later, I actually wrote her as soon as I got out of prison, had Instagram, I saw she like followed me and she was like being hella like kind in my comments, like just regular. And I DM'd her immediately. I was like, yo, like when we were kids, we were making out. I was trying to take your clothes off. You kept saying no, like that shit was super creepy. I never should have done that. And Mm -hmm. she was just like, don't mention it. Like, like it's all good. Like we've, we've grown past that. And we're still friends to this day going back to that quote, the small is all. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not fair to just let those moments constantly, constantly go by. Mm -hmm. Which is why I feel like a lot of, even the carceral feminists are like, it's not fair for rape to just happen and there'd be no consequences. Facts. And I really do agree with that. Same. Like, there has to be some type of change. Like, stop business as usual. That needs to happen every time someone is raped or someone is harassed or someone is touched inappropriately. And I think what we're offering with this conversation is like, how can business as usual stop in a way that it doesn't trigger another cycle of violence? Right. Especially because the prison system itself is sexually violent. Right. A strip search is sexual violence. Like when adults are strip searching children, that's gross. Yeah. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. Like the... You know, when when I was in jail, the first sexual violence that I survived or endured was being strip searched by cops who would then make all kinds of weird, gross jokes like shine the light up in your butt and just like make just say like gross, Mm -hmm. nasty things to us. Mm -hmm, You know what I'm mm -hmm, saying? mm -hmm. And that's part of the system. Like this system relies on sexual violence in order to exist. hundred percent. And people treat that like it's valid punishment. Like, if you get raped in jail, that's your bad because you shouldn't have went to jail, you know? Right, right. And most people who commit sexual violence do not go to prison. Of all of the rapes that are reported, just the ones that are reported, Rain says that only 1% of them end in a conviction. So when people say, what about the rapists? When we say abolish prisons, yo, the rapists are not in prison. They're running for president. They are running huge productions, running huge companies. Yes. But they're not in prison, fam. The prison system is not stopping rape. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm interested in. Like, what are we doing in our society that will stop rape from happening? And like those moments where it's like this, like, you know, this person's drunk 
and you see the person, another person who's not drunk, who's like dragging them up the stairs. It's like, how can we create systems to where it's like people know it's common knowledge that person can't consent? So Yo. it's like, hey, homie, bro, 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 what are you doing? Yeah. Like, yeah, like that. No, like, I just seen that. I was literally, I was standing in front of this club. I was outside and there was this man walking by with this woman and she looked at me in my eyes and kind of put her hand on me like she knew me. And I was just like, that was weird. And the other dudes I was with was like, bro, I think she was trying to pretend like she knew you so that dude would leave her alone. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at her and seen, he they weren't walking together. He was dragging her. Right. Like he had her arm, like, like he was holding her arm and she was like kind of drunk and trying to slip out. Uh, and it's only because that other dude pointed out to me that I caught on and I was like, right, right, hey, right, right. oh shit, wait, hold on. Let me holler at you real quick. Like I totally forgot and like walked up to her and dude like saw me and looked at her and like saw that we quote unquote knew each other span off wow like that though like that's how we keep each other safe right no that's like the collective eye that's like that's how the village like raises each other up like we all know when that type of violence is amok or when it's possible you know hmm. and that's why i really i rebuke this thought that oh men are just programmed to get what they want and will always just be dominant creatures that will just can't control their impulses. Like, I call bullshit on that because men are just as capable of stopping rape as anyone else. Shit, yeah. And need to get in line to do that work. I think it's because of just how intense and hurtful sexual violence is that makes it so difficult for people to even envision transformative justice being used as a response to sexual violence. Yeah, I think that's our work right there is to make it somehow visible. That's what makes transformative justice transformative justice is that it is generative conflict. People think that abolitionists, people who believe in transformative justice, we don't want any conflict. We just want to ignore problems. Or we don't no. expect conflict. Right. right. No, we're saying let's make the conflict generative. Let's make sure that the, the consequences of this action actually better the situation going forward. And that's not what the prison system does. Word. I was reading this chapter of Miriam Kaba's book, We Do This Till We Free, called The Sentencing of Larry Nassar Was Not Transformative Justice. And it's a difficult concept to unpack, right? Because everybody's familiar with Larry Nassar, the doctor for the USA gymnastics team who was guilty of heinous sexual assaults. And um, he was sentenced to 40 to 175 years. And the public was largely supportive. And the judge says something to the effect of, I just signed your death warrant. And there was a, an article written in The Atlantic called The Transformative Justice of Judge Aquilina, who sentenced him. And so in the book, Miriam Kaba is saying that this is not transformative justice mm -hmm. and that it's a predicament that we find ourselves in as abolitionists, that we don't want to be seeming like we're rape apologists or, right. you know, siding with those that commit this intense wrongdoing. But also, we can't say that our ideal is abolition and then clap and applaud when somebody's given two life sentences. And I think what was interesting in this chapter was that she spoke to the fact that most people who commit rape will never see their day in court. They won't be tried. They won't be convicted. They won't see a cell. Right. And 
by sentencing Larry Nassar, we're not actually, as a society, getting any closer to justice for rape victims as a whole. We're not getting Mm -hmm. closer to eradicating rape from our society. Um, But it's still difficult because it makes me think about R. Kelly. And I'm like, what are we going to do about Robert? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm from Chicago, Mm. you know? So when I was a kid, I was not ready to let go of R. Kelly, you know? And I remember being, you know, maybe 15 years old. And I used to argue. I don't know what my argument would have been, but Mm -hmm. I used to really argue on behalf of R. Kelly, being like, I'm rocking with R. Kelly. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in Chicago are definitely rocking with R. Kelly. And although I'm by far not one of them, I'm also like, you know, it's it's tough because when I hear R. Kelly's getting beat up in jail, part of me is like my instinct is to be like, you know, yeah, great. You know what I'm saying? I remember Mm -hmm. one time TMZ asked me, I was downtown in New York and I'm crossing the street. TMZ asked me a few years ago, maybe 2016. They were like, Vic Mess, what do you think about R. Kelly? And I was like, I think R. Kelly is the scum of the earth and they should throw away the key. Hmm. These are pretty much my exact words. And then I saw R. Kelly somewhere outside and, you know, I ain't gonna lie, he was real big too. I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> he was like, he was like 6'3 and I come in the, in the party and Ludacris is like, hey, Vic, R. Kelly right over here. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that's, that's, that, that's besides the point. The point here yeah. is that what what do we do? What do we do about R. Kelly? Because yeah. I'm not feeling him, but also, do I think he should die in prison? This is where it got complex for me because when I thought about R. Kelly's story and I think about the documentary surviving R. Kelly, they do talk about his experience with sexual abuse. Word. Being sexually abused. Yes, as a child. being sexually abused as a child, and it so- sounds like it was someone like like an uncle or yeah. someone a trusted, uncle. yeah, authority figure, mm-hmm. and so. Right there, like from a young age, that sense of like authority, that sense of belonging, that sense of worth, that sense of right or wrong, like that's all up in there to me. So I'm not surprised that R. Kelly exists and that this person who was given a lot of money and, and fame and power and who has a talent, um, I'm not surprised that with that type of experience growing up and within this patriarchal society that all of these things occurred. But at the same time, like, I'm just so interested in zooming out, right? Like, at like, what are the conditions that allowed this to go on for this many fucking years? And I think that's the abolitionist conversation. I just think it's important that when we talk about someone like R. Kelly or anybody who's caused harm, abolition is not saying you have to forgive R. Kelly. Abolition is saying we should not be committing more harm. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's our only requirement as abolitionists is to not do more harm and not do more violence whether it be Larry Nasser or R. Kelly, the, the level of violence they've created, there's no threshold in which it now becomes okay to do violence to them from an abolitionist lens. See, now I think that for R. Kelly to be separated from his power to continue to do the things that he had been doing, I think that would actually be good. Yeah, you know, for that was him. needed. And Shout I, out to the Mute R. Kelly organizers. That's exactly, exactly what they were seeking to do. Hashtag Mute R. Kelly, founded by Kenyette Barnes and Oranike Odeleye is a grassroots movement started in 2017 with the goal of ending R. Kelly's ability to abuse women and girls by boycotting his music. 
I love what you said about how do we just not continue more violence and more harm? Because I think when someone is harming and has so much unchecked power and someone who is in their toxicity, who's in their their violence, how do we get that person out of that cycle so that doesn't happen anymore without harming them or desecrating their humanity? I think it's in our intentions. You can say, yo, I'm going to take you away from the people who you might potentially harm. And my goal is to destroy you. That's what the system does. Right. You can say, I'm going to take you away from the people who you might potentially harm my because goal my goal is, is to, to protect them. to restore you. Yes. Right. And that's a different, <laughs> that's, that's the abolitionist proposition. I think that what, what is a, a powerful perspective here is shifting from putting all of our focus and attention into the individual perpetrators of acts of violence and harm yes, and putting more focus and attention into creating structures that protect and help people heal. You know what I'm saying? Right. There's so little space in our communities really structurally devoted to educating and helping people that right. experience these types yes. of harm. And I want to say, like, there's so much rage around R. Kelly. Like, there's so much anger towards him. And I feel that anger as well. Like, watching that fucking documentary was so triggering and so hard. And for everyone who's just kind of, like, using this, like, these different individual perpetrators, like you're saying, as, like, talking pieces, it it kind of irks me because it's like, yes, be mad at these individuals, but also, like, be mad at your homie who's, like, a pimp. Right. Like, be mad at this patriarchy that you you live and, and benefit from all day, every day. Be mad at the music industry that exploits women. Like, be mad at the things that, you know, we low-key comply to because it serves us or it helps us. Right. Like, R. Kelly has not harmed more people than everyday rape culture has. Yet, we celebrate everyday rape culture. And we condemn the individual. This is where the penal system and penal ways of thinking really fails us. Because if we had an abolitionist system that actually responded to harm and sought to solve it, then little child, 12-year-old Robert, would have had somewhere to go before he grew up to be the predator that is R. Kelly. But because back whenever that was, the 70s, all of our money was going into prisons and cops, there was nowhere for him to go. So he grew up to be somebody who has now harmed hundreds, maybe thousands of people. And that cycle continues. People look at abolitionists like we're fluffy hippies that just want to be nice to everybody and don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. That's not what this is about. It's about actually investing into what keeps people safe. And when you introduce punishment and shame, it gives something for people to run from. And there is no room for accountability and safety where there is punishment and shame. Coming up, we're talking to our friend and incarcerated organizer, Laura. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Hey, Laura. Hey. Hi. So you already know me and Richie. So I'd like to introduce you to our other host, Vic. How you doing? What's up, Vic? I'm blessed. 
Happy to speak to you. Thank you so much for being here, Laura. I know it's hectic getting to the phones. Can you tell us how you are today? Oh, well, um, so today I am, I am, I am here today, and I am doing my best to stay grounded and and focused and have a purpose in everything that I'm doing. I'm currently incarcerated. I'm nine years into my fifty to life sentence. Wow. And that's fifty with a five zero. Yeah. Hmm. Free you yesterday, friend. What made you say yes to doing this show, Laura? So mainly this helps myself and this also helps others. So, you know, I'm I'm really big today on having healthy reciprocal relationships. Mm. So I've spent so much of my life holding on to my issues and my traumas that it did nothing but make a television that I would suck inside of. And here I am now in prison. So by sharing myself, I'm able to release that hold that the past has put onto my present and they can move forward. And I hope that what I have to say can help other people who are struggling and surviving abuse and that they won't make the same choices that I did. Wow. Yeah, thank you you deeply for that. I want to ask you, like, you know, what was your childhood like and growing into yourself? So I was materially spoiled. It's just emotionally, it was neglect. Mm. But it just, that's not enough. That's not enough. And I was really just miserable growing up. And I could never quite put a finger on why, because everything that I experienced as a child and growing up, it had all been normalized for me. I didn't know any other way. I just knew that I felt horrible about where I was and I needed to escape. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what your relationship was like with your mom? So my mom started sexually abusing me from the time I was two months old until I was nine. I loved her, but I was afraid of her at the same time. And I wanted to be around her, but being around her made me incredibly uncomfortable I had this profound anxiety around her, and I'm able to recognize now that what we had was a codependent relationship, so there was very much this uh, this mutual obsession for our behaviors to control each other, and just this compulsion to influence our wills on the other. I see that now, but as a child, I had no comprehension of any of this. I took everything personally. I didn't understand why I was the way that I felt. I didn't understand how these things were wrong, but they felt wrong. It was very complicated, and I felt very alone. You weren't given the opportunity to have a healthy relationship with your mom. Do you remember when you knew cognitively that you were being abused by your mom? It, it really connected for me, and I felt like I needed to say something, but I actually physically could not get the words out of my mouth. Like it was trapped in my chest. Like I kept opening my mouth trying to say, I've been raped by my mom. And that didn't happen until I was 20 years old. Wow, it's a long time. Yeah, I spent so much time, um, you know, again, with just that, you know, that child trying to, to fix things the best way that I could figure out, oh, I very early on started using and abusing substances. I started using alcohol and um, opioids by the time I was eight years old because I figured out by then that that combination worked. No idea of how dangerous it was. I just knew that it helped me 
to escape. That's all that mattered was escaping. So I was very much, you know, not just stuck in trauma from my abuse, but then from my substance abuse that came from that. I had no maturity to handle any of it. Mm. So that was how I responded. In the beginning, you talked about how you wanted to to share yourself and, and how you are so open to sharing your story because you don't want people to do what you did. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. It feels like there's no rhyme or reason to it. It was just a, an avalanche of responding to to horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I had no direction. Mm-hmm. My inability to see the future, much less like a happier, normal one, it overwhelmed me. And I couldn't stop thinking about killing myself. I couldn't stop being obsessed with punishing everything for being a part of why I felt so horrible. Mm. Like, I really wanted to see the whole world be as destroyed as I felt. Yeah. Basically, I thought it would be a really great Valentine's Day present to kill myself. And so, in true codependent fashion, I asked my mom for help. I made up this whole lie about how... You know, I just started college this spring semester. I left a notebook at my boyfriend's house. She agreed to drive me over to my boyfriend's house, and I stole his gun. I stole his forty-five. I didn't want the forty-five. I wanted the nine because I felt like I would be able to hold that against my chest and pull the trigger without Oof. the kickback, you know, breaking my hand. But I couldn't find it fast enough, and so I'm like, well, I know exactly where the forty-five is, so that's that's what I went for. And I had already spent so many years stuck in the suicidal, homicidal fixation between myself and my mom. The only difference this time was that I had a gun and I used it. She came into the house that I was sharing with friends at the time. So I asked her to wait in my bedroom while I was in the bathroom. And I go to my bedroom and there was something in that moment, just seeing her sitting on the end of my bed... And I'm just looking at her. And that's when all of these feelings started to come back up again. And it was right then when I'm holding the gun in my hand that I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you're going to do this? Survival instinct is a son of a bitch. I went immediately from I need to die to I feel this way because of her. And it immediately flipped. And it took all of two seconds for me to rack that gun and throw open the bedroom door and take a couple strides to the other side of the bed and hold up the gun, and I shot once. And there was nothing after that. There was nothing I could have done. I I, I stood there, and I watched her die. Mm. Thank you for taking the time to tell us what that day was. Yeah, that was frustrating. Every time that I think about it, I feel this frustration. Like there were so many times that I could have stopped. There were so many times that I could have done something different. Um, There were so many times that I I could have gotten help. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I just, I stayed on the trajectory I was on. I want to acknowledge um, the complexity here. It's, it's so easy for people outside to make a judgment about your story but there's so many layers to it. I'm just wondering, you know, how do you relate to your mom and what happened now? So it's um, it's been nearly nine years since I murdered my mom. And it's, you know, this, 
this is horrible. This is terrible. This is something that's like a, a biblically wrong thing to do that I did. And, you know, today I can recognize that my mom was also a survivor of abuse and trauma and that she, like me, struggled with her addiction. I stole her opportunity to seek healing. And, you know, even though today I'm surprisingly able to have, you know, a, a somewhat full life and, you know, I took that from her. Mm. Do you forgive your mom? Yes. Yes, I forgive her. And that took a really long time. I still really struggled in my resentment with, with first year and my anger. Yeah. It was really a struggle. It, it was really hard. And slowly I was able to build onto it. Like I used to tell myself, if this had gone down the way that it should have gone down, my mom would be here for what she did to me and I would be out there. But then I started looking around and seeing these older women and how they were being treated in here. And especially if you have like a, a sensitive case, if it involves a child or, mm. you know, how they're treated and thought, I don't want that for her. I wouldn't wish that on her. It was very layered mm-hmm. and it was the same attitude of, you know, being angry at her. Where did that get me? So let me question that. Let me stop looking at it from my perspective and try to see it from hers. Mm. I could begin to understand her as her own, you know, individual complex hurting adult. And what she did had nothing to do with me. You know, she had her own demons that she was battling and I was the unintended collateral damage. She was sick and that needed compassion, not not what I did. What I did was wrong. Hmm. So I've, I've been able to get to a place where I forgive her and I wish I could go back and change what I did, but I can't. And I have to live with that. In this transformation that you speak of, how did you become an abolitionist? So... I would say that <laughs> incarceration has politicized and it's socially radicalized me in ways that I never could have imagined before all of this. Mm. And I had a taste for it before with my experience in the treatment industrial complex. I saw how abusive and counterproductive that those systems of quote-unquote treatment were. I spent, from the time I was 12 until I was 19, I have been in mental institutions for 5150 holes, that's a danger to yourself or other, um, 19 times. Somewhere interspersed between there, I found enough time to be able to uh, be sent away to out-of-state residential treatment facilities for troubled teenagers. And... The whole time I was on all these different cocktails of medications, they would say, oh, she's manic depressive when that was a thing. And, oh, no, now she's major depression, you know, mm-hmm. schizoaffective, schizophrenic, and back again. And heavily medicated for all of that. Um, it was very frustrating. I felt This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It was very frustrating. I felt like my body wasn't mine. Yet again, you know, on top of the experience from my mother now with the treatment industrial complex, yet again, it was instilled in me that my body was not mine. There was no respect for me as a human being. There was no respect for things that were, you know, inherently a part of who I was. And um, as a young adult, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I did a little bit of advocacy work for an organization called CAFTI, and that's a Community Alliance for the Ethical Treatment of Youth. And mm-hmm. um, I 
did a lot of writing. I submitted testimony to Congress to be able to regulate these systems because they're not. And they, from everything that I've seen, they they remain not regulated in the way that they should. Um, and I did a little bit of graphic design. And, you know, I did little things to give back. And that helped me to heal a lot from that experience. So now, as I've gotten older, I've seen this. I've seen this change mm-hmm. and now in my experience with prison. I'm able to make the connections between how I was where I was then and how that led me to get to where I am now. So the people that are closest to the problems are those that are closest to the solution. That's right. And our, yeah, and it's just our reliance on caging and punishing and disappearing people as somehow the automatic best response to harm or alleged harm is ultimately just destructive for all of us. And mass incarceration, this is a failed experiment. No other business, because that's what Mm. this is, no other business could have the failure rate because that's what recidivism is. Recidivism is a failure rate of incarceration. Mm. No other business could have that level of failure and continue to be floated along like somehow this is the best way of going about things. It's it's not working and it's draining from the rest of society and it, it, it's got to stop somewhere. It yeah. has to. What do you say to people who say that we need police and prisons to protect women from sexual violence? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I see how people go, well, if we're not going to do it this way, what pie in the sky rainbow ideas do you have about doing it some way different? Like somehow this is the only way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not. And I, I would say that the rapid expansion of prisons and militarized police over the past 40 years, how's that been working out on protecting women or men anyone, from sexual abuse? It, mm. You know, it's not working. And I think especially, you know, seeing the Me Too movement, it solidified to many of us how sexual abuse and control. So sexual abuse and control are these are systemic cultural problems. So we've all been programmed to be desensitized to violence, and we're all pressured socially to think sexual objectification is normal. Right. But more people are rejecting those kinds of knee-jerk social lessons for the dehumanizing garbage that it is. So people need social and economic power to be protected from sexual violence, not police and prisons. So when you provide people access to housing, food, health care, child care, meaningful work that's fully compensated, access to quality education, these are things that actually enable the autonomy, security, and respect to no longer perpetuate abuse. Yes. Hmm. Wow. Boom. I'm loving that. Laura, what has helped you heal? Something that, that's really helped me heal is, is just being honest. Um, ripping out my guts and saying, I don't want to hold on to this anymore. And I know that this isn't just about me. I know this is something bigger than me. So I was very proactive when I first came here. I signed up for all the groups I could possibly get, and I ripped my guts out. And I was very blatantly clear about, this is what I did, and this is why I'm here, and this is how I felt, and this is what happened. You know, I just spilled it all out on the table because I'd been holding on to it for so long and that was not, look, look at where that got me. So now moving forward, it's like, I can't hold on to this anymore. I have to let it go. I have to get it outside of myself. Yes to healing. Yes. Thank you so much, Laura. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be here. I appreciate it so much. 
Coming up after the break, I'll be talking to my good friend, legendary filmmaker, and writer, Dream Hampton. Stick around. What's the big old deal, y'all? This is Abolition X, where we bring abolition to the culture. And today I have the honor of sitting down with my good friend, Dream Hampton. Hi, Dream. Dream is a producer, a director, a writer who has been using her work and platform to protect Black women and girls for decades now and is very much recognized for her work producing the docuseries Surviving R. Kelly, which came out on Lifetime in 2019 and has really found itself back in the news given R. Kelly's recent trial for his sexual abuse and trafficking of Black women and girls. So I'd like to start kind of at the beginning of our relationship. The first time I ever spoke to you, I was writing you from prison. Mm -hmm. And you were rescuing women from R. Kelly's (laughs) house. I was not rescuing women. I was producing an episode where one of the mothers, we had flown her out um, to Los Angeles to interview her. And she got wind because there was a video on TMZ of her daughter in Los Angeles at the same time. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh my God, my daughter's here too. I know what hotel this man stays at. I think I know where my girls are. She went and rescued her daughter. Mm. And we got that on camera. But yes, it did involve like, it was a day-long thing. And I remember getting a letter from you and telling our mutual friend Patrice. And Patrice probably very dramatically was like, she can't write you back. She's out here rescuing. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but in many ways, it's it is true. I mean, we we definitely want to recognize her for for rescuing her own daughter. But I think there is something to be said for the way that you used a docu series budget to empower her to be able to do that. So that instinct is yeah, part filmmaker, but it was my wildest dream. Like when I was making Surviving R. Kelly in my office, I had pictures of all of the girls and three of them were currently living with him, you know, in real time when we were doing that. So it was my dream that they find their way home to their families, not necessarily for our cameras, just period. And how did you find yourself in the position to be able to do that? What is your story as a producer, a director and a writer and an organizer, if I may add, that that put you in the position to be able to do that that day. You know, I wish any of those things mattered. I think they probably thought of me as something that I haven't done for a long time, which is a music journalist, you know? Mm-hmm. So they were a studio that produces reality TV, you know, Buna Murray. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this show. They had access to some of the survivors and they were looking for someone to be a showrunner, an EP, you know, someone to shape it and to make it a real documentary and not a reality show. I was suspicious about that. I was like, y'all don't make documentaries, you know? Mm -hmm. Lifetime don't make documentaries. Buna Murray don't make documentaries. Like, are you sure? Because I don't want to make whatever Lifetime just made about Aaliyah. And I'm definitely not making 
whatever y'all are making, keeping up with the sisters who are married to Kanye and their bikinis or whatever. And so I say that to say they had not looked at my other work. I made mm. Black August featuring Asada Shakur. I hate to be like all behind the Oz curtain. Is it okay? Because <laughs> I know that you are trying to figure out how to make work in Hollywood or film and TV. And I don't know, there can be a laziness, quite frankly, when these people are like trying to figure out who they're even working with. And so they had this idea of me as a music journalist. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been a music journalist this entire century. Um, so I had to put <laughs> aside what they wanted or why they had called me. And I had to think about why it was important to do this work. And you're right, as an organizer, you know, I can't honestly say that gender crimes and like sexual violence and gender violence have been at the center of my work. Black girls have always been at the center of my work, but... Mm-hmm. As an organizer, my work has been around prisons and policing. Mm -hmm. Of course, women are also centered in that work, um, but all kinds of women, cis women, trans women, like women are in um, prisons and are terrorized by the police. But I knew that I could do this. I knew I could tell the story. I knew that the story deserved to be told, and I knew that it was the right time to tell it. It was the right time 20 years ago but I knew that there was a movement that was gaining momentum and that there were these devices and these platforms that may make things different than they were in 02 and 08 Mm -hmm. and in 98, you know, because R. Kelly's been doing this for a long time and we've known about it for a long time. And I wasn't always on him like I should have been, you know, Mm. when he married Aaliyah, quite frankly, I thought, I don't know what I thought, that it was like a, whatever that euphemism we have, May-December. A May-December romance is a term used to describe a romantic relationship with a considerable age difference. In 1994, 27-year-old R. Kelly secretly married his protege, R&B singer Aaliyah, who was just 15 years old at the time. It could also be called your grandparents, you know? Oh, yeah. My great-grandmother got married at 15. Yeah, exactly. So... I can't say that I knew that him supposedly falling in love with Aaliyah was predatory behavior. What we should have seen is that it was grooming. Mm -hmm. The kinds of songs that he was writing for her, this kind of Lolita, AJ, nothing but a number. He's always put his predatory behavior in his work, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I owed it to, like, my former younger self to handle this. I owed it to my generation, Gen X, you know, again, people along the gender spectrum. I always say that, like, R. Kelly was the one, you know, R&B artist who kept, like, a, a male fan base when no, everyone stopped listening to R&B. You know, mm. the only R&B that was acceptable was, like, a chorus and a rap song, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, for a long time. And But R. Kelly was the exception, you know? His peers did not have his career. R. Kelly had a very singular career. And we just all watched him be a predator in front of us for a very long time. And I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Detroit. So Chicago is right next door. Mm -hmm. I flew to Detroit because I knew that the Detroit chapter of Mute R. Kelly was doing a protest outside of Little Caesars Arena and that I would get people to say things on camera by Mm -hmm. asking a few simple questions. Mm -hmm. And so that is included in the documentary. And it really speaks to how I don't want to say complicated because it's not. It's pretty predictable. You know, patriarchy, 
to me, I often call it the worst of the sins, you know? And you, of course, your work and, you know, you talked about writing me from prison. I was blown away that you were writing me about teaching bell hooks inside and that, you know, that you were looking at masculinity as a root cause, you know, of not what had landed y'all there, because what had landed y'all there was white supremacy, capitalism, but yes, and patriarchy, you know? I mean, patriarchy is why I robbed those stores. Yeah. But then patriarchy is not just an internal. Patriarchy is as systemic as as the other two, right? Like mm-hmm. patriarchy, I always, I've been saying this, you know, I'm sorry to recycle uh, like one of my little sayings for your podcast, but I didn't learn about bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks from Snoop. Right. I learned it from the book of Genesis, hmm. you know? Right. And I appreciate that point because they try to treat us like hip hop made up patriarchy and, and that's not the case. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, that's one of the reasons I had people like Ann Powers, rock critic, in there talking about the lyrics to the Rolling Stones, talking about Elvis, talking about Jerry Lee Lewis, talking about other men who were not unlike R. Kelly. It has been reported that Elvis Presley was known to have sexual relationships with teenage girls as young as 14. Jerry Lee Lewis famously married his 13-year-old cousin when he was 22. That led to a record boycott and a backlash from fans. But Lewis eventually made a comeback. I do want to say that we don't have evidence of 30 years of Elvis preying on Priscilla's. Sure. Same with Jerry Lee Lewis, because this has become a talking point for Black men who want to defend R. Kelly and do the what about them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me, the what about them is that I care about Lizette and Lisa and Asriel, not Priscilla. I mean, I hope Priscilla is fine. Of course. But that's... (laughs) But you're trying to protect us. (laughs) Right. This is happening in our communities. Yeah. Exactly. But when you talk, if we can circle back to you invoking you know, the prison industrial complex yeah. as a way that informs our knee-jerk defense even of someone like R. Kelly, even this whataboutism, mm-hmm. and our just, again, incredibly predictable response. And it's been generations tried and true that we will, you know, sacrifice Black girls and women and femmes mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. And not to mention queer folks, you know, what's happening with Dave Chappelle in this moment, every time for Black mm-hmm. men. And we will create this false victimhood around brothers that says that somehow they're under this like outsized attack. Now, when you locate that in the prison industrial complex, which of course has its roots in slavery, it is a fact that Black men were falsely accused of sexual crimes, that that is a part of the way that um, Black men were tortured and hunted and murdered for since we got here, right? Since before Mm -hmm. we got here, how we exist in their literature and their imagination. It is also a fact that Black women, and by women, it it often means girls, Mm. are adultified. It's impossible to rape us, which was a a literal law, obviously, during slavery. You know, it was impossible to rape Black girls because we did not have dominion over our bodies. We didn't have agency Mm -hmm. over our bodies. While the 13th and 14th Amendments ended chattel slavery in the U.S., making the rape of a Black woman illegal, de facto barriers to prosecuting the perpetrators remained. Black women accusers of sexual violence have historically been dismissed and disregarded, 
and continue to be to this day. And then narrative-wise, just around the same kind of stereotypes around Black men and, and uh, oversexed, whatever that means, because sex is wonderful. And I don't know if you can be oversexed, <laughs> mm. but like this idea, you know, that Black men are sexual predators it is a one-for-one one with Black women. Mm. When slave owners, capitalists who enslaved Africans to build the wealth of this nation accused Black women who they were raping of seducing them by just existing. Right. Right? That scholarship also exists. We don't go back to that scholarship when we're having this conversation about the root causes of the things, the reasons why we get so defensive of people like Cosby and R. Kelly. Mm -hmm. And it is a cellular kind of memory and a response. Like lynching, just like the Holocaust and how, you know, you will hear Jewish folks talking about it takes three generations at least to begin to heal from this trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about the hundreds of years that we were in slavery and our sexuality was weaponized against us to torture and murder us, then you're talking about a cellular memory. And so when people have these responses, I understand. I get it. Yeah. Black feminists have constantly pushed back on this. We have to be able to talk about what's happening within our own communities, what's happening to Black girls in public. Aaliyah was not some secret. Right. And oftentimes when we see things in our communities, it's not a secret. It, it, R. Kelly was not a secret. The police knew about him. The off-duty police worked for him. The videotape of him raping a 14-year-old that girl appeared to be less than 14. We later found out that she was 14. And I remember grown men saying, well, maybe she's just skinny. Mm. Like already rationalizing, you right. know? Right. There was an article that you had written um, shortly after he was charged and turned himself in where you said the survivors of his abuse did not call for his incarceration. That's right. They called for healing. They called for him to change his behavior. Now that he is being incarcerated, how does that sit with them? How does that sit with you? Well, let me be honest. For my cameras, they never called for that. When I wrote that article in Time Magazine and they were later asked about it, they were like, some of them did say, no, I want him to go to jail. Mm. So there wasn't, although that sounds like a very clear kind of abolitionist None of this is clear. None of it is easy, right? Right. We had two questions that we asked everyone. Do you consider yourself a victim or a survivor? These were the final questions. And if Robert, because they all called him Robert, if he's watching this, what would you want to say to him? And and they all, not like every, not one of them brought up jail. All, well, one of the mothers did. Mm. But every single one of the survivors said that they want him to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. Yes, some of them also said they wanted him to have a healing, but they wanted the harm to stop yep. happening to girls like them. Because I was interviewing generations of women. Mm -hmm. I was talking to women who had the same experience in 98 that Asriel Clary was having in 2018. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks say that we need prisons and police in order for it to stop. They would say, well, now it stopped. R. Kelly's in jail. Now his abuse has stopped. First of all, prisons are not rape-free places, you know? They're definitely not. Yeah. Abuse is happening within prisons. R. Kelly's story begins with him being raped and abused. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it has stopped for him, that it will stop for him. I think that even if to not get, because that can be 
not sensational, but that can be lurid in a way that I think doesn't even begin to talk about the horrors of of prison, right? To, to only focus on the sexual abuse that happens inside those walls from guards and fellow inmates, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of rape as punishment, which is an old like a centuries, millennial old war tactic. Yeah. So rape as a, a tool of oppression is an old one. Like prison rape jokes are still seen as culturally acceptable to this day. I probably stopped making them 10 years ago and I'm not young. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, I had to unlearn that like old. I'm an old woman. You know what I mean? I'm in my 30s mm. still making prison rape jokes. Like what? On Tupac's album. When Tupac was making Me Against the World, I was in the studio and I was the only woman in the studio and Pac was like, get in this booth. You know, we about to freestyle or whatever, like a skit. He was on his way to jail and I made a drop the soap joke. Yeah. It didn't make it onto the album, thank God, because I wasn't young then. I was 25, you know, and had already had a lifetime of experience with the prison industrial complex. But your initial point about like people's experience with the prison industrial complex is informing their compunction to defend R. Kelly. Mm -hmm. It has to do with, yes, this history of slavery. Yes, this history of lynching. Yes, this history of a narrative of African men um, and men of African descent and um, indigenous descent, by the way, being sexual predators. But it also has to do with this real idea that Black people and people who have had any historical contact with the prison industrial complex, that it is not a site of justice. I've been in prison with people who were still committing sexual violence in prison. Of course. The system itself commits sexual violence. A strip search is a non-consensual act. And if you think cops aren't making weird butthole jokes and stuff when they're strip searching people, then you're just, you know, you're you're not tapped in with reality. Mm. So given all of that, what does stopping his behavior, what does a path to safety for these survivors look like, not just for R. Kelly, but for all of the folks who are committing sexual violence in our communities today? It's almost too big a question, so I'll deal with kind of R. Kelly. And my answer is actually a patriarchal one. It would have looked like peer checking. It didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw the O2 tape or knew about it, because if you didn't see it, you knew that Dave Chappelle did two skits about it. You knew that right. uh, South Park did a joke about it. You knew that the Boondocks did two episodes about it. That's it how I learned in, about it in middle school. It was, was from absolutely. It was in the cultural conf- Yep, it was in the cultural conversation. Mm. As an organizer who fights to get rid of cops in prisons, how do you feel about R. Kelly being incarcerated? It's not my right to feel away, and I have to say that I was honestly numb. Mm. This system is not sophisticated that someone who cannot read or write like R. Kelly wasn't able to game the system, which he did in 08. When those charges around child pornography connected to him raping the 14-year-old on the 2002 tape that we all saw or knew about happened, he was able, through his attorneys, to have a strategy where he delayed that trial to 2008. Right. In doing so, he did a couple of things. One, he made sure that should that victim take the stand, she'd be 20 and not 14. Mm. The other thing that he was doing was keeping her close to him, which isn't that hard to do, to keep a 14, 15, 16-year-old thinking that she's in love with your 30-fucking-year-old ass. Mm -hmm. So she thought she was in a relationship. He paid her parents off. Again, capitalism. 
Mm-hmm. So first of all, I didn't expect that there would be charges. I thought, you know, one of the reasons when I talk about having it feeling like I had a responsibility to do Surviving R. Kelly, it was because there was a way that our cultural memory was beginning to dim around the crimes that not only he had committed, but that he was becoming more egregious about committing. In some ways, his behavior escalated, his, mm-hmm. his predation escalated, his abuse escalated. I hope that he'd be canceled. Mm. That we would stop giving him our treasure, which yes, is our money at, at concerts, but it's also our love. Yeah. You know, that's his real currency. So you're hoping for canceled or that we'd stop giving him our cultural capital. Or call him in. If you can't do that, then call him in. Right. I was hoping that we could be reminded of of the kinds of crimes that he was committing in real time. And so I didn't have an expectation around an arrest, around a trial. So when the charges come, I'm afraid because he's already outwitted the system before. Mm. When I first talked to you, you said that you were not an abolitionist. Um, that was probably three years ago when I first got out of prison. Are you an abolitionist now? I probably said I don't self-ID as an abolitionist. And... I feel like, like all labels, not to be too esoteric about it, but when you take on that work, it's real work, you know? Yeah. And there's an ethic to it. And I'm just too wavering on it, you know? Like, I don't know. I have too many planets in Scorpio. <laughs> kind of vengeful, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I'm a full know? Scorpio. I got three Scorpio placements. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I sit at, up at night thinking about ways that people could die, you know? Ooh. But none of those fan- <laughs> none of those fantasies, <laughs> none of those fantasies include prison. First of all, I mean, Frederick Douglass's picture is in my bedroom. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Like, you know, Harriet Tubman is a hero. Like, these were abolitionists. You know, even John Brown, that's my favorite white boy in history, right? So like, <laughs> and prison slavery, of course, you know? Abolitionists are also doing the work, you know, and this is why people like Mary Cobb and Ruthie Gilmar are so important. And now Derricka Purnell and Patrice are all offering these alternatives, these ways forward that involve investment. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say in prevention, but investment in dismantling, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like there's a degree of prevention because even as we were talking when I was like, how do we keep our community safe? Your answer was for men to hold men accountable in predatory behavior. Now, a lot of people who are really bought into the system will say, sexual violence is happening right now. How do we stop it right now? But it's, it's, it's not very linear. It's actually more circular. We need to, at least the abolitionist idea is, we need to change the conditions and culture that create sexual violence that stop it happening in the future. We understand it's happening right now as we speak. And those interventions will help in those moments too. But see, men intervening with other men is inherently patriarchal. It's saying that, you know, in a very, I think of it as quite Greek, you know, that um, when you look at women as just vessels for reproduction or whatever, you know, as they did in Greece, of course, the people that you truly love are going to be other men. The people that you truly listen to, the people that you build with. I have to take it back to Greece. I was in Brooklyn at the Fort Greene Park when the five percenters used to build and the mm. earths would just be there to maybe feed them and definitely be quiet while the gods built. Mm. That might be a hip hop reference. Five percenters. The 5% Nation, also known as the Nation of Gods and Earths, is a Black nationalist movement founded in Harlem in 1964. 
The five percenters believe that only 10% of people in the world know the truth of existence, leaving 85% of people ignorant and under their rule. The remaining 5% are said to know the truth and are charged with enlightening the 85%. My uncle, he stripped the women in his church of all teaching duties because of a verse in Timothy, you know, and Mm -hmm. my grandmother had taught him the Bible. Mm. So... This idea that who you poly with, who you build with, who poly, that might be too old for you, that phrase, but who you politic with, who you Mm, like. I was like, I don't know what that means, but I'm a nod. (laughs) (laughs) Who you politic with, who you like build with, who you reason with, to use a Rastafarian term, you know, that there's other men, that the wisdom of other men counts more in your estimation. That's a patriarchal construct. You know, if I'm Audrey Lord, I'm saying you can't dismantle the master's house with his tools, right? So my solution to your question is inherently patriarchal. And so even there, I feel like I'm failing. I don't know. I just don't know if I agree with the idea that it's patriarchal for men to hold each other accountable. I would say that that's anti-patriarchal because accountability doesn't exist within patriarchy. It's not a patriarchal idea. Silence and domination that's what patriarchy gives us is domination. Because ultimately it's just about who is safe to criticize. Like when I talk to street harassers on the street, it's because I know like this nigga ain't finna try me the way that he might with you. And that's really what I'm relying on. I hear you. It's a strategy. Um, It's not a solution. I guess that would be the short answer. Mm, I hear that. I hear that. In a word, what is abolition? Abolition is imagination. Mm. It's a belief in a better world. It's like living in a parallel universe, like building that parallel universe, even as you deal with the realities of this cruel fucking perpetual crises that are created by capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. And in some ways, it's deeply philosophical and in the most optimistic way, it believes that with investment, like humans can be better. It doesn't believe in like some fatalist idea that some people are born evil or or impossible to reach or save or um, to be in community with. It believes in like not throwing any of us away. But in some ways it's very pragmatist because like we were saying earlier, everybody comes home. So there is no throwing people away. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You banish somebody to Siberia. (laughs) They still exist. They still exist. They might walk home, you know? They might Mm -hmm. get on that long-ass train back to Moscow. (laughs) I've been been on that journey (laughs) from (laughs) Moscow to Siberia. (laughs) Oh, God. Is there anything else that you would want to say? I feel like every time you do an interview... I see your interview on TV and then you text me and you're like, they cut this shit out. They cut this shit out. <laughs> I was talking about this. What's the raw shit that you would want to say that you they usually cut out? Listen, there is nothing more raw to me than like the example that you're living. You know, I, I really, you know, I mean that I've, when I have a chance mm-hmm. to like lift up your work, I do that. You know, I just, I think that the way that you're moving through this world with so much integrity and like, Courage, you know, it takes courage to take on patriarchy, to even understand that it's a root problem, you know? The other ones are a little bit easier. It's pretty easy to talk about some shit that's not in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you don't see a white man. 
when you walk into like whatever, wherever you get your sneakers, you're not, the the, the salespeople aren't treating you like a white man, you know? Mm-hmm. So to look in the mirror, to know that, you know, you have this privilege based on some, you know, bioessentialist ridiculousness. Bioessentialism, a belief that biological factors, such as someone's sex at birth, are fixed and are the main determinants of someone's culture, personality, and gender. And to still want to work to dismantle that, big and small, macro and micro. I just really appreciate, you know, how you're moving through this world. I'm grateful for you. I received that. I appreciate that affirmation so much, friend. And I really appreciate how you're moving through this world, too. Thank you, Richie. Before we go, make sure to check out our show notes for today's episode. We've got links to resources for survivors and our families, as well as a link to the Miriam Kaba article that Vic mentioned at the top of the show. Plus, you can check out Dream's 2010 film, Black August, a beautiful documentary about Black liberation and hip-hop. And hey, hit the follow button! Come on, I'm to hurt you. So you never miss an episode. Abolition X is a Spotify original podcast. Our creative producers are Miguel Contreras, Candice Manriquez-Ren, Courtney Gilbert, and Brandon Sharp. Our executive producers are Gina Delvac and Corinne Gilliard. Editing by Miguel Contreras and Michael Hardman. Sound design and mixing by Michael Hardman. Original music by Indigo Mateo, Vic Mensa, Richie Reseda, and April Kay. Special thanks to Leslie Guam, Robert Adler, Casey Simonson, and Hugo Salguero. Our voiceover artist is Tara Cease. We're your hosts, Indigo Mateo, Richie Reseda, and Vic Mensa. Make sure to follow Abolition X only on Spotify. If you or someone you know has been affected by sexual violence, know that you are not alone. Free, confidential support is available 24-7 through RAIN's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. If you or someone you know may be struggling with their mental health, there are ways to get help. Please visit spotify.com slash resources for more information and access to mental health resources.